Thank you for joining me today for Carl Erickson's Sounds and Words, a podcast with a difference. Author and Ignatius Press editor Carl Olson joins us today on Sounds and Words. Why don't we begin with you sharing a little bit about your personal journey home to the Catholic Church? Sure, yeah. Well, I've been, uh, for people who don't know, I have been working for Ignatius Press since 2004, so this marks 15 years that I've been with them, which has been a real uh, wonderful experience. And I've written some books for Ignatius Press, and my current position is my main work with them is editor of Catholic World Report, CatholicWorldReport.com. Right. Um, I'm 50 years old this year and actually just celebrated 25 years of marriage with my wife, Heather. And my background is that I was originally raised in a very fundamentalist and anti-Catholic um, background. Uh, I would say anti-Catholic home, but it sounds like we, you know, we go around hating Catholics. The funny thing is, is some of the closest family friends I had growing up were Catholic. Huh. Um, but my running joke, which is only partially a joke, is that they were Catholic, but we just knew they were going to hell. Um, <laughs> now, what I mean by that, you know, when you talk about anti-Catholicism, I mean, they can yeah. be the very overt kind, which is very, very, uh, you know, kind of in your face. And it was interesting because I was raised reading Jack Chip comics and, and a lot of anti-Catholic literature. Um, but, but, you know, my parents are, are really great people, wonderful people. We had lots of friends who were not part of our, you know, small Bible chapel group. Um, certainly we witnessed to them, and especially if we thought they, they needed to be, they needed to hear the gospel and so forth. And so I really saw this, um, you know, this witness from my parents, which yeah. you know, overall I really, I really admire, even though I parted ways with a lot of the theology later. Um, and so growing up in that environment, there are a lot of good things, a lot of time with scripture, uh, memorizing scripture, really learned a lot of basics uh, of the faith, you know, Mm-hmm. God is triune. Jesus Christ is uh, you know, the incarnate Son of God. Um, salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we believe in faith alone, and we believed in kind of these basic principles yeah. of classical Protestantism. We were part of a non-denominational group, um, but we were very strongly affiliated with the, the premillennial dispensationalist movement, belief in the rapture and this impending uh cataclysmic apocalyptic time. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, that was something in the eighties growing up. I really believe it was going to happen at any moment, even though we didn't believe in setting any kind of dates. Right. Right. Um, so a key, a key turning point for me, you know, there were a number, but one of those was after a couple of years of art school, after graduating from high school, I decided at the encouragement of my pastor, who by the way, I'm still uh, very good friends with, um, mm-hmm. my former uh, kind of evangelical pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, he encouraged me to go to Bible college for a year, kind of take a break and reset. Um, I'd gone through a, a kind of a bad breakup with a girlfriend of my second year of college. And so I did. I, I took a year and I went to Bible college. And I ended up actually going for two years and getting an associate's degree. And that was really a turning point for me because I was very fortunate to take some really wonderful classes in Scripture and also in um, Christian literature, Christian arts. Mm-hmm. And, really opened up a world to me and kind of, I really had it for the first time. I really had a different perspective given to me about like say the Anglican communion, the Catholic church. I even learned a little bit. We actually had to read uh, some Augustine in one of my classes. Um, And that really sparked an interest. And it also raised a lot of great questions, you know, great questions about passages like John six. I mean, many evangelicals will point to. 
And so that, after that, I moved to Portland, Oregon. I went to Bible college up in Canada, actually. <clears throat> moved to Portland, Oregon, and really over about the next, from my early 20s into my late 20s, was just a time of constant like reading and studying. I was working in retail advertising, mm. um, but I was always constantly reading a wide range of things, history, yeah. politics, philosophy, theology. And I began to read Chesterton and then Newman oh, yeah. and early church fathers and... Um, Heather and I got married in 1994. She was a okay. graduate of Multnomah Bible College. We had a lot of the same questions, and you know, I'm really thankful that we were able to take this journey together. And we moved back to her hometown of Eugene, Oregon, um, back in 1995. Okay. And shortly thereafter, not too long thereafter, um, met with Father Timotheus, who was a priest at. Mm. Mm-hmm. The Catholic Church right across the street from where we're living. Oh, okay. Um, he's famous, Father Tim Mikaitis, or well known by some because he went through this really incredible thing where his uh, he had heard a confession at the local right prison, and then yeah. was uh, that was recorded. And the, it, this is a case that went to the Vatican. You, you yeah. probably know a bit about that. Some of our yeah. folks in the Northwest will know about that. Father Tim's a fantastic priest, wonderful man. He is. He's so, our he's our parish priest as well. Okay, so there you go, small world. I, yeah. I wondered if you would probably have known him being there in yeah. the Salem area. So wonderful man. Yeah. And um, we went through the IRCIA program. It was actually a really excellent program. I mean, it was all catechism and scripture and really very strong. And through that, I learned about this um, MTS program, Master's of Theological Studies program, through the University of Dallas, which the University of Portland was doing. So we entered the church in 1997, and that same year, that fall, I began my master's studies, and then it kind of sum up this part of our, my life. Mm-hmm. Um, graduated in 2000, but in the course of those classes, where I had people like Father Mitch Pacwa, uh, Dr. Marcellino D'Ambrosio, um, really some fantastic professors. Um, wow. One of my professors was Mark Brumley, who at that time was... Okay an editor for Ignatius Press. And now Mark has been the president of Ignatius Press for many years now, and he's my boss, and he's the one who brought me on board to begin Ignatius Insight, which is an online, the first online magazine that Ignatius Press had. And now for the last uh, about eight years, I've been the editor of Catholic World Report. So uh, Mark and I really hit it off because we had a very similar background. He came mm-hmm. kind of out of an evangelical background as well. Um, and so... Uh, I've just really been blessed to be working with Ignatius Press, who is you know, a wonderful uh, publisher. And, you know, I think the thing I like to emphasize with Ignatius Press, it's an apostolate, you know. I mean, it's not about just publishing books. It's right. really about spreading Mission. the truth of the, truth yeah. of the Catholic faith. Um, yeah. And so that's really the wonderful thing. Yeah. The uh, that's going on. Yeah. Actually, our, our story is quite similar because I uh, I was raised in the Nazarene uh, denomination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, went to uh, Seattle Pacific University where I, I met my wife Kimberly, and, and uh, it was really in uh, it was really uh, in the Doctor Wall's New Testament class that my mind began to you know uh, begin to kind of kind of explore these kinds of questions, and uh, we we joined ended up joining the uh, the Catholic Church in uh, two thousand five. So it's uh, our our journey is somewhat similar in that respect. Right. So, when did your when did your views of Catholics begin to change? When did you realize that 
uh, hmm, maybe these these folks aren't all bound for uh, you know <laughs> fire and brimstone. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's it's there are a couple of moments that would stand out to me. Now, I, I as a growing up in a small town in Western Montana. Um, by small, I mean the nearest stoplight was 40 miles away. The nearest <laughs> yeah. McDonald's was 70 miles away. Um, I, for some reason, was really drawn to a lot of classics of literature growing up um, on my own. Uh, some later through teachers, but in seventh grade, for example, I fell in love with the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Oh, okay. Um, I read. I was reading John Milton and Charles Dickens and all this on my own. Yeah. And but T.S. Eliot really hit me in the gut. I really loved his poetry and still do. And I think a lot of that stuck with me. And of course, I read about his life, and I became familiar a bit with his his journey into the Anglican communion. Mm. And then in Bible college, I think a real key moment was I was taking a course in religious literature with a a professor, Cal McFarland, who is an Anglican and is now an Anglican priest, has been for a few years now. Who um, the course we studied. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, Charles Williams, uh, Flannery O'Connor, T.S. Eliot. And I, when I began to read Flannery O'Connor, mm, yeah. that really was eye-opening for me. I really loved her, her yeah. writing. It resonated with me. I really kind of got it mm-hmm. instinctively. I think the sacramental and incarnational view. Yeah, Obviously, yeah. a lot of people are kind of shocked sometimes by her stuff, but that's the whole point. Yeah, it's wonderful. It. Yeah. Um, I ended up writing a major paper for that class on T.S. Eliot's poem, Ash Wednesday, where I really reflected, uh, uh, for me at the time, rather deeply on, on the Marian dimension of that poem. Oh, okay. And I think what it was is I just saw this beautiful world of literature and art and just a way of looking at things that was far different from kind of a kind of an enclosed utilitarian perspective that was part of the fundamentalist upbringing I had. You know, for example, growing up, I was very much into painting and artwork, and I did a lot of artwork, sold a lot of artwork. Okay. But I was told from early age, well, you know, if you do religious art, you know, it really should just be trying to figure out how to get people saved. Now, of course, that's a wonderful, wonderful goal. But there was kind of this utilitarian practical approach to the arts that I really disliked. Um, I realized that beauty and, and goodness and art and music, these things exist. They're good on their own. Oh, right. Yes. And, they, and they, of course, they speak to the goodness of God and the beauty of that God has given us all these things. And I was fortunate to have two or three classes with uh, Cal McFarland, and he was he was great in this. I mean, he really I took kind of deeper dives into culture. I was reading a lot of Francis Schaeffer. Mm. Of course, even though I part ways with him on a lot of things now, I think it was really good for me at the time. And, you know, like I say, reading Augustine, reading certainly a wider range of things, mm-hmm. and even being kind of exposed a little bit to early church history. Yeah. Uh, more of that came later, but it, those doors were open for me in Bible. So I would say that, you know, it was around the time that I was uh, 19 and 20 in Bible college where really I began to, to shift my perspective about the Catholic church. Okay. That's wonderful. And actually, I did attend for six months, so I went to art school right after high school for a year. Okay. And then between that and, and uh, Bible college, you know, I mentioned the, the, the bad breakup I went through. Mm-hmm. That was actually at Northwest Nazarene college in that. Oh. oh, okay. Yeah. And um, even though I was there just for basically six months, um, there were some good things that happened there too. I had a really good scripture course there. And I think um, 
you know, God used that, that relational failing yeah, yeah. <laughs> to open the door to, you know, these other things. So was um, there, uh, just out of curiosity, was there a Dr. Berg there when you attended? Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't ring. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. What, what would he have taught? Um, uh, he was a, a religion professor uh, at Seattle Pacific that went to, um, I believe, went over to that college, uh, but he might have actually been in more of an administrative position. I I, I don't remember. Um, okay. All right. Um, so let, let's let's move on to um, your books a little bit. For those who have not yet read, will Catholics be left behind? Can you give us uh, an idea of the dangers of a belief in a pre-tribulation rapture? What does this mean, and why is it so important for Catholics to clearly understand this concept? Yeah, the so the, the I was raised, I was immersed in that belief system and for Catholic people who are folks who are raised Catholic and don't have maybe direct experience with this belief system, it's it's kind of hard to explain how all encompassing it is. I mean it to its credit, it's a complete worldview. I mean really that's what we should have as obviously as Catholics too, but I think I think for a lot of Christians, whether Catholic or otherwise, you know, we have to say, well I'm Catholic, I do this and then when I'm at work, I'm this, and right, but, right. But when you're in a, when you're really a hardcore rapture believer, a premillennial dispensationalist, I mean, it, it encompasses everything that you do. Yeah, um, and it's very admirable in that way. But the difficulty, of course, is trying to step out of it and see it for what it is. And for me, it was it was key not only to look at scripture and study scripture deeply in this regard, but historically, what happened is I began to become interested in the Catholic Church as I went back and I actually traced the. Um, you know, the, the heritage that I've been given as a quote-unquote non-denominational Christian. Well, I knew that we were actually strongly affiliated, even if not officially, the Bible chapel I grew up in that my, my father co-founded with the Plymouth Brother Movement. Well, what was the Plymouth oh, okay. Brother Movement? So I started researching that. Well, that was a movement that came out of the late 1700s, early 1800s over in Ireland and England. And one of the key members who came along a little bit later after it had been founded was a guy by the name of John Nelson Darby who was a former Anglican priest, and then I began to discover, well, Darby actually is the one in the 1820s who, as he had kind of these different crises he went through, as he began to study scripture, he came up with this belief that God had actually, uh, in, in salvation history, had actually worked with two different people. Um, that that when, he, when Christ came and offered the restoration of the kingdom to the Jews, that Christ had been, according to Darby, Christ had been completely rejected, and so God was essentially forced, if you will, to come up with a plan B, and that plan B was called the church. So to put it in kind of simple terms, and I dive much more deeply into yeah. this in the book, what happens is, is that we have two different people of God on earth. We have the Jewish people who are the – Darby, frankly, talks of them as the earthly people who are waiting for the fulfillment of a 1,000-year Davidic kingdom, the millennium. Right. And the church are the spiritual people of God who are going to be taken out <laughs> – so that God can get back to his prophetic plan that had originally been rejected by the Jews at the time of Christ. Hmm. As I began to understand this and read Darby and read his followers and read, you know, Schofield and, and later guys like Louis Perry Schaefer and others, I began to realize how radical Darby's view was. First of all, it is Protestant, but it's not one that Martin Luther or John Calvin or others would agree with. Yeah. You know, they never posited this radical break between 
uh, either, you know, Jews and Christianity or two people of God, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so the rapture in Darby's system becomes a necessary kind of escape for the church to be taken up to fulfill its earthly book or its heavenly vocation. Um, and that the God, God get back to his plan with the Jewish people. Right. So, right. Um, there's a lot more to this, but that's the bare bones of it. And as I began to see that, I began to see how the hermeneutics that were used to arrive at this, the way of reading scripture, it, you know, it, there's serious, serious problems. Mm-hmm. So what I really try to emphasize in the book and the way that I sum it up is this, if you begin with a flawed Christology and the flawed Christology here is saying that when Jesus came, he failed and he was rejected mm-hmm. completely, right. which you know is not true. Was he rejected by many? Absolutely. By all? Of course not. Right? And then, if you start with that, then that leads to a, a warped, a skewed ecclesiology, understanding of the church. And dispensationalists have a very lacking, low view of the church. Um, this is interesting, by the way, that some of the strongest opponents of dispensationalism are Calvinists, <laughs> who've written some really blistering critiques of this. And one reason is because Many Calvinists of the more traditional nature have a very relatively high ecclesiology compared to uh, that of dispensationalists. Okay. Then, and finally, the third, you start with a bad Christology, a lacking Christology, of a skewed ecclesiology, and then you end up with a really messed up and really warped eschatology, what we believe about the end of time. Right, right. And judgment and what follows and how it all comes together. And so I really, when I give talks on this, I try to impress that simple, but I think essential, foundational, kind of uh, threefold process. You start with a, you know, it's like, you know, it's like the old thing. If you believe that two plus two equals five, uh, as as some apparently do. Yeah. (laughs) Then, well, when you start doing advanced uh, trigonometry, how far off are you going to be? Well, you're going to be way off at that point, right? Mm So that's basically what happens. And so yeah. um, what I found when I was entering the church, my wife and I were entering the church in our in our RCI classes, it's that there were a number of Catholics who were really into the Left Behind books, you know, the, oh, yeah. the very popular novels, which have now sold by 65, 70 million copies. Right. Um, and, they, you know, they make Dan Brown look like Shakespeare. They're so badly written. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I really think the importance of my book on that, I, I hope, I believe, is that it shows how interconnected these essential beliefs are. What we believe about Christ informs what we believe about the church. And right. that, in turn, shapes how we understand salvation history, how it begins, how it builds, how it culminates, right? Yeah, so. yeah. Why do you think John Darby was so successful in uh, putting these ideas out there? Why wasn't there more criticism and, uh, you know, critical thinking on the part well, of the church? Yeah, it's a, it's a, the history of this is fascinating, and I do get into some of it in my book. Um, I think that if it had just been Darby, I don't know that it would have taken off the way he did. But here in America, where this really took roots... Uh, it was because a lot of it was because of not just Darby who came over and lectured, I think some eight or 10 times in North America, Canada, and the United States, but by his most ardent disciple, Cyrus Schofield, mm. who produced the, uh, the Schofield study Bible in the early 1900s, which went on to sell, uh, I forget, it was probably like three or four million copies off the top of my head. It was a lot. And what Schofield did is he took Darby's, speeches and stuff, he distilled them into his notes. And so he interpreted mm. all of scripture in light of Darby's system. Okay. 
And then you had guys like Lewis Berry Schaefer uh, come along and get created a Schaefer created a systematic theology, produced a systematic theology based on Darby's belief system and Schofield's reference Bible. These all things. Well, what happened is this starts to happen in late 1800s, early 1900s, and you have this explosion of small and large Bible colleges being founded um, throughout the United States, places like um, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary and, and Texas um, and others. And these really became, uh, these really informed a lot of small, quote-unquote, non-denominational churches throughout America, but also kind of informed the larger evangelical movement. And you had, then of course, later you had Hal Lindsey in the 1970s with his hugely popular books, Late Great Planet Earth and right, Others, that right. took this on a, on a very popular level, sold millions of copies. I think... How Lindsay sold, gosh, like, it was like 40 million copies. Mm. Right? So a lot of it was perfect storm, uh, yeah, yeah. soil, right? Uh, it's, it's a fascinating thing, and it's a very much an American phenomenon. That's the thing I try to emphasize to people. Huh. That's fascinating. Um, okay, so for the uh, your book, Called to be the Children of God, it explores theories of, of uh, uh, or theosis, or deification, by means of an introduction to this idea, what do you mean and how would you contrast it with a Mormon idea of becoming gods? Yeah, and in fact, my, <laughs> when I give talks on this, and I try to introduce this, you know, a popular level to Catholic audiences, I make I, I make a couple points. One, I, I tell them I'm going to share with them, I'm going to contemplate with them the most shocking paragraph in all of the catechism, paragraph 460. <laughs> And then I say, then when I read that paragraph, which talks about God became man so that man could become children of God, then it ups and says God became man so that man could become God. Mm. People are kind of like looking at me like, that's in the catechism. And I'm like, yeah, this is the Mormon. This is the Mormon paragraph. In the <laughs> that's right. They slipped it in. Yeah. But then I say, hey, these quotes, guess what? These quotes come from St. Irenaeus, St. Athanasius, St. Thomas Aquinas. Mm. And then we start to unpack it. So... Again, this is, you know, the, the comparison of Mormonism is, is important, I think, because in Mormonism, you don't have, of course, the same understanding of who God is as Trinity or Jesus Christ is as the incarnate word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I emphasize that in, so in Mormonism, uh, classically, uh, every uh, a Mormon man who enters into the afterlife and the good graces of the, of the Latter-day Saints is gifted with his own kind of planet, and he, of course, has these uh, various brides. I mean, it's, when you start yeah. digging into it, it gets rather bizarre, right? <laughs> now, in, in, in Catholic theology, in Eastern Orthodox theology, the way it's understood is that God became man so that we could enter into the fullness of the divine life. We could share the Trinitarian life. We actually are filled with by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're filled with the life of God. So the Father sends the Son so that he might then gift us with the Holy Spirit so that then we, through Christ, who is our Savior, our mediator, we have communion with God the Father. Okay. So this is part of the Trinitarian missions. The Catechism has a really beautiful section on this. So when I've taught courses on soteriology, I'll ask the question, it's a trick question, I'll ask you know, who who was the first great missionaries? Who were the first you know real missionaries? And of course, you get some good answers from people, right? And 
I'll say, you know, they're all different people, right? Uh, you know, St. Paul, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, God the Father. God the Father is the first missionary. God the Father sends the Son. This is part of the Trinitarian missions. So I think when people began to look at it in that way, they began to get a sense of it. And then when you read the catechism beginning around paragraph 1994, 1997, it talks about grace as the divine life of God. Now, of course, we believe there's different forms of grace, actual grace, sanctifying grace, et cetera. But put it in simple terms, grace is the Trinitarian life of God. We become by grace what only Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God, is by nature. We never become ontologically God. But we are so, so filled and so intimately in communion with God's very life and love that we, it can be said by the church fathers that we become God. Hmm. Um, and the, the image that sometimes has been used historically, traditionally, is that of, of the uh, blacksmith working with iron. And as the iron that he works with, it becomes hotter and hotter, becomes red hot. It is filled with the fire, right? It's right. transformed by the fire, and yet it remains, it remains iron. Hmm. And I think that's a, um, it's a good you know, uh, visual metaphor uh, of, you know, of sorts to think about. Um, so, we, you know, the tradition really emphasizes that, of course, God alone is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But by the incredible grace and mercy of God, we were actually invited to enter into this very life. So in the, in the Western tradition, we refer to this as beatific vision. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. In the East, we talk about theosis. There are many terms. Um, you know, there's in the, the mystics really talk about this in terms of a nuptial marital reality. If you read like even St. John of the Cross or St. Teresa of Avila, et cetera, they talk in those terms. Um, you know, Scott Hahn has done a wonderful job over the years of talking about divine sonship, which is mm-hmm. the exact same thing. In fact, it was through Scott that I really began to understand this as I was journeying towards the Catholic Church and it began to make a lot of sense of scripture that I had puzzled over for a long time. Um, and then when you start reading the early church fathers and and so forth, you begin to see it. So this book yeah. is really, uh, it's a compilation of this work of historical theology where we begin with the Old New Testament and we go all the way up through the catechism and show how in the Catholic church, this has been a consistent theme, hmm. even if sometimes it seems a little bit strange to Catholics. Yeah. So what I, you know, to sum up this, what I discover when I give talks about this, when I begin with my joke about the Mormon paragraph and paragraph 460, is I'll get these strange looks. But as I began to unpack it and read some scripture, people start going, oh, okay. Okay, this sounds more, I kind of understand. I hear this language in liturgy. I hear this in scripture. I, you know, I, it comes through. Right, um, right. And I refer to it as kind of like the wallpaper. You know, you... After a while, you don't pay attention to wallpaper, oh, but it's right. it's there, right? Exactly. Um, so that's the goal. The goal is to really show how deep and how how central this is to what we believe about salvation. That that it's not just about being saved from sin, which is of course very important, right. but it's being saved for God, for God's life, to be to live His life. So there's the right. negative and positive aspects. I think you have to have both of them. Uh, what would you say to someone who um, hears this and expresses a concern about losing um, uh, their their unique personal nature or who they their identity, if you will, um, in uh, in the afterlife? Do you, do you believe that? Uh, well, how would you how would you answer that? Well, 
I think it goes hand in hand with another concern that is sometimes expressed, which is, well, doesn't this kind of collapse the great chasm that exists between God and man? Mm. Um, and I would start first by saying to that question, I would say, well, that chasm was completely and perfectly uh, brought to an end by the God-man, Jesus Christ. Mm. Okay. So we have to look at, we have to begin, this has to be very incarnational in perspective. And then, you know, John Paul II talked a lot about, you know, become what you are. And he would often, he talked a lot about theosis, actually. He talked a lot about divinization. His, his, uh, his three encyclicals on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just loaded with this talk. And, of course, he had a, he had a very strong um, knowledge of the Eastern tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, he was very immersed in St. John of the Cross and so forth. Um, I think we have to understand the nature of God, which is when we talk about God as being personal, I don't think we even begin to even start to grasp how radical that is in informing us about what we are, mm. that, that our uniqueness. Now, sometimes what happens is we're told so often, oh, you're so unique and God loves you for who you are. Right, well, that's, right. absolutely, that's absolutely true. But God wants you to become who you really are. And only he can actually help you to become fully what you are, which is absolutely distinctive and unique okay. because it is rooted in his grace and his love and his transforming, you know, fire of his mercy. I mean, right. we are forged. And so it, this is not at all pantheistic. This is so contrary to kind of a pantheistic collapse where we all become, you know, kind of the one that the monistic perspective right, right. and like the, that a Buddhist tradition right yeah yeah it's absolutely contrary to that and you know i i would say you know honestly if i would say to somebody if they really struggle with this i'd say you know what go read saint augustine's confessions read his confessions and then tell me if you think that he became more himself oh. or less himself as he became yeah. converted right yeah, well, yeah. We know the we know the answer to that right yeah yeah so that's, That's so true, yeah. So you look to the saints, and the, the, and the incredible thing about the saints is how wildly diverse they are. Yeah. You know, I mean, Augustine, you look at even just Augustine and St. Jerome, who live in around the same era, they two incredibly different guys, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Different, and yet they're both saints. You, I mean, yeah. St. Therese of Lisieux, uh, St. Uh, you know, all these different saints are so different. Uh, Thomas Aquinas is very, very different from mm-hmm. St. John Bosco. It's so that to me, it is the proof yeah. of the pudding. Yeah. Like, yeah. Look at the community of the saints. Yeah. That's excellent. Uh, do you have any thoughts on what distinguishes perhaps the, uh, the Catholic view of time from other religious faiths? It's just, uh, an area that I've explored in the past and uh, it continues to be of interest. Any thoughts on that? Well, it is, it's a great question because it's something we, we take for granted, first of all. We just say, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, time. But the more you dive into it, the more absolutely mysterious it becomes. Right. But also, the, the, the Judeo Christian view of time is unique. I mean, it was, as you, as you know, it was in the Jewish religion that, that finally. Uh, there's a breaking with this kind of cyclical, uh, deterministic, fatalistic mm. view of history. Right. And you begin to understand because God is completely other and he created time, he creates all this, and we live in it, then that's that's radically different than saying, oh, we have all these this pantheon of gods who themselves are kind of in time 
or we have the sacred grove over here, the mm-hmm. sacred tree over here. It's very, very different. And then in Buddhism, what fascinated me about Buddhism is it's not even a concern. Like the, the whole idea of where did time and creation come from is not even really a question that mm-hmm. Buddhists are that concerned with. Yeah. In fact, as a Buddhist, you can believe in God if you want, but it's kind of secondary to everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas in Christianity, we would say time is so intimately related to free will and the fact that our actions and choices have lasting internal consequences and that we're not stuck in some deterministic cycle, but we actually are living in, you know, what Chester would call this grand adventure Mm -hmm. where, where our decisions really have lasting consequences and really shape who we are and affect the lives of others and so forth. Uh, That's very different from what we see in the Eastern religions and I would even argue in certain ways it's different even from kind of an Islamic version although this that shares of course some things with a Christian version but I think yeah. it's also kind of fatalistic in a, in a certain way as well okay um, have you had a chance to read Bishop Robert Barron's booklet entitled Le- Letter to a Suffering Church and, yes, and what were your thoughts and reflections on his on his points yeah, we read that in our men's reading group that we've had going here for about 15 years. Oh, okay. Um, and had a discussion on that about three months ago, right after it came out, because I was actually sent a, uh, I was actually sent a PDF of that by, um, by the folks that are Word on Fire. And okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, um, I would say, you know, overall, very, very positive. I, my, it's, I've been so immersed in working for Catholic World Report and a lot of the stuff that's been going on in the news and so forth. I. I hate to say it, but I, I sometimes get a little bit maybe jaded or even a tad cynical about, you know, here's another something from another bishop. Uh, obviously, I have tremendous respect for Bishop Aaron, and I've written two study guides for him, and I think he does wonderful work. Um, I think that there's a real strength to it. I think one of the strengths is the historical and biblical background that he presents. Uh, many of the guys in our group remarked on this, and I think rightly so, that they, they had really, they, there are a lot of these historical incidents of, of you know, negative, uh, even, you know, kind of um, scandalizing things that have happened through the history of the church that they weren't aware of. Right, uh, right. And I don't think any of these guys are, are are blind to human nature. But, you know, when you when you read about aspects of, say, the, the, the 900s where the, the papacy is referred to by some historians as the pornocracy, yeah. I mean, it's pretty shocking stuff, Yeah, right? Yeah. Um, now, um I wondered, and I think this was a point of debate in our, our, our point of discussion in our group, you know, if you handed this uh, letter by Bishop Barron to, say, a Catholic on the edge, what would it do? Well, we don't know. Um, uh, it could be very helpful to them. I, I, I don't know. I think some people are so jaded that, uh, you know, I'm just not sure. I. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, though, I think it's very positive. I think it's good that he he wrote it. Um, I think it's good to be challenged to remain strong in our faith, our love for the church, and to put some things in context. I right, think right. we often fall into the trap of thinking, gosh, you know, we live in the worst times ever. Well, guess what? Pretty much everybody's thought that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, why? Because it's impossible to really understand what it's like to live, say, 200, 500, 600 years ago. And, of course, we have no idea what it's like to live in the future. Yeah. So, of course, we're experts on our own time. And so yeah. our own time becomes kind of all-encompassing for us. 
So I think his emphasis on the historical way of looking at it and the biblical way of looking at it is really, really good. And I would say, I think he could have even gone a step further in his biblical treatment. I'm, um, I recently, well, a couple of years ago, I taught a Bible study at my parish on Ezekiel. And Ezekiel chapters 20 through 22, 23, 24, right in there, has one of the most, I think, shocking sections of the Old Testament. Because Ezekiel, as he as he's writing from Babylon and just railing against the corrupt Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem right. who are you know, letting the temple just go into complete apostasy, really. Yeah. He's, he says flat out, he says, Israel is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. It's worse. He basically says Sodom and Gomorrah are like Mary Poppins compared to, mm. you know, wow. Jerusalem and Israel. And he goes on, talks about how Israel has completely prostituted herself and she, she has become this whore. And he goes on and on. I mean, just, wow. it's like this really massive, uh, just scorching, uh, section. And I thought, as, as we we're talking about this, I was thinking, you know, in a way, you know, this is shocking and it should be shocking, but it's good for us to realize that through all, all of this, Ezekiel continually comes back to the f- fact that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. He, he, he is always faithful to his covenant. Always. Yeah. Um, the fact that certain leaders are corrupt or evil or whatever doesn't change the faithfulness of God or the fact that the people who are truly um, holy, truly seeking God um, are, are the true people of God. Right now we should always be careful about engaging in, you know, how we judge others. Obviously we should, we should rightly judge public actions and, and so forth. We obviously are not called to judge the souls of others. That's not our job. Right. But I think it's good to have that biblical historical perspective and to realize that this is uh, this is nature, this is human nature, this yeah. is reality. But on a practical level, and I think maybe this is where Bishop Barron's letter might be a little bit lacking. Is so, what do we do? Oh, what do right, we do? right. Um, I don't really hold that against the letter at all because that's a super tough question. I do appreciate the fact that he in that letter really wanted uh, lay involvement in certain aspects of governing. I personally, my personal opinion, I'm not speaking for anybody or myself here, I, I really do believe that there's this attitude like, well, if once a man is ordained a priest, it's like he suddenly magically has abilities and governing and administration and everything. That, oh, right. Yeah. Now, obviously, priests have to do certain things, and obviously they should have some training in various things. But I think setting aside the issue of faith and morals – of course, neither priest nor laity can change the church's teaching on faith and morals. Right. Um, when it comes to lay leadership, um, that has nothing to do with the um, ministry of the priest. I think there really should be an openness to more involvement. That, that you, you know, I think one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in is because you have bishops taking care of other bishops and mm. bishops covering for priests and priests yeah. covering for other priests and. You know, even if it's a small number of them, and I think it is relatively a smaller number, right. it's still the kind of rot that comes from that. Um, we're seeing it, and yeah. it's, it's pretty substantial. A lack of accountability. Totally account, and, and and even worse than that, it's it almost is an empowerment. Right? Enabling, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, right. It becomes yeah. it. 
it's like this festering thing that just the poison keeps spreading. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I've seen. I've not seen a lot of the content on the first in the first edition of that thing. Okay, okay. Um, so Pope Francis' recent uh, Abu Dhabi statement on the diversity of religions raised some eyebrows. To quote from the passage, the pluralism and diversity of religions, color, sex, race, and language are willed by God in his wisdom through which he created human beings. And uh, the Holy Father clarified to Bishop Athenaeus Schneider of Kazakhstan that that the intended meaning was more along the lines of permitted than willed. But do you feel satisfied with that (laughs) clarification, or how do you feel about that? Personally, no, I'm not. I'm not real satisfied with it. All right, um, I, because if he, if he meant God's permissive will, which that argument can be made, because of course God did permit that. Right. Um, okay, that's fine. I understand it. But the fact is, is the way that it was stated, and the way it's left to stand, and the way that people understand it is not that way. They yeah. understand it in a kind of a relativistic way, which is that God permits all these religions; they're all kind of equal in a way. Mm. You know, this kind of goes hand in hand with uh, Pope Francis a couple different times. His pontificate has made a big deal about how we are all children of God. Now, we were just talking a bit ago about the book that I co-edited, right. the Children of God. Well, no, actually, we aren't all children of God. I mean, I, all you have to do is go to First John 3, where it says, it talks about the children of God and those who are children, not, not children of God. John is, you know... I would say that the Apostle John, if he were alive today, probably wouldn't be made a cardinal if I could put it that oh. way. Um, now, I, I get what Pope Francis is probably trying to say. Now, Pope Benedict, uh, I think, put it a lot better uh, years ago. He talked very specifically about how there is a sense in which we can talk about being everyone being the children of God if we're referring to God as creator and how we're all created by God. Of course, all have inherent dignity given okay. by God. But specifically from a Christian perspective, when we talk about being a child of God, we talk about those who have been filled with the divine life of God, that is, have been baptized, right. and filled with the Trinitarian life, and who are thus marked with the, the mark of baptism. Okay. That's yeah. distinct, right? Right, right. Um, so I think this whole thing of I, the, the problem so often with Pope Francis, unfortunately, is he, say, he says things that, that can be interpreted in a very orthodox way. Uh, and I think we should give them the benefit of the doubt. The problem right. is you have to ask sometimes why so many things that are so ambiguous or confusing or misleading or apparently misleading, maybe not right. intentionally. Why right. so many? Yeah. Why not say in God's permissive will or God permitted if that's what you meant? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what sometimes we get with Francis is he, he will say something to one group of people, and this has been documented. I mean, this is not some kind of secret. He, he'll say one thing to one group of people, and then he'll say something that's a bit different to another group of people, and then something even more different than that from to a third group yeah. of people. And you see it all through kind of his public career. And I don't know if it's just he, he wants people to be happy or to like him or he's trying to please everybody, or, but I i just seen it too many times, yeah. and it's bothersome, and, um, you know, this is what I, one of my big concerns with him, is yeah. that he, he will say things that could be interpreted in a, uh, a bad way, a misleading way, and then 
he's only he only tries to clarify if he's really pressed on it. Right, right. But it's but the damage oftentimes in my my view, the damage is often already done. Yeah. So Yeah, I agree. It's um it's unfortunate. I do think that that statement is problematic and I think it does give a misleading notion. I mean, the fact is we really do believe that Christianity is the true faith and that mm-hmm. while other religions have aspects of truth to them, they are not the true faith. Right, right. Um, that, it, that's not triumphalistic. That's just fact if you really are a Catholic. Now, if you don't believe that, then you may want to revisit what it means to be a Catholic. Yeah, yeah. It just seems to be coming very close to universalism. Um, yeah, exactly. And I think that's been a, a it's been a concern. And I think yeah. that, uh, you know, it's really funny because Pope Francis in the past has talked about we, we don't, we shouldn't be having, you know, priests be so harsh in the uh, you know, confession and, and people, you know, judging everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, maybe, perhaps that was a problem where he came from in Argentina. Oh. I've talked to people from Argentina that didn't yeah. seem to think so. But it's certainly not a problem. I think that we, we see throughout the Catholic world today. I don't think that that's, that dominates. I think what what dominates is something on the other end where it's kind of like, yeah, God loves you no matter what. Mm. It's all good. Just try to be a nice person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we weren't called to be nice people. We're called <laughs> to be saints. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, so what are you working on currently? What What's on your agenda? Well, we're doing, of course, a lot of things with Catholic World Report and um, getting ready for the, the October Synod, um, which should be a very, <laughs> should be very interesting as, yes. as the last uh, couple of sentences have been. Um, I write for some other uh, outlets like the Imaginative Conservative and uh, occasionally for National Catholic uh, Register and so forth. Okay. And I um, also work on a couple other book projects. I, um, I owe Emmaus Road um, some opening chapters to a book I'm writing them on ecclesiology. Okay. And then we're trying to we're trying to get our house on the market. We're trying to get out of the country with a little bit of land because we've got a couple of horses and oh, so yeah, it's uh, great. It's, it's, so you've got your you've got a full yeah. plate. It sounds like lots lots going on. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, my my daughter just got married, so I can uh, certainly understand what the full what the full plate means. It really uh, it really uh, can be challenging at times. Yeah, yeah. Right. And we've got our kids are um, 11, 14, and eighteen, and. And we homeschool, and we do a variety of different kind of schooling yeah. situations and stuff. And so it's a, we're back into it now with uh, oh right September, September right yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Carl, this was uh, this was uh, great, and uh, really appreciate your time today, and um, love talking with you. Thanks, I appreciate it very much. And we'll have to do it again sometime. Okay, thanks. All right, you take care. Okay.